Good morning, guys. Good morning. You guys can take a seat. Find the coolest spot available. I would like all of you, for one moment, uh, to turn your attention to Stephen and Tess, the smartest people in the room. <laughs> they found their own personal fan over there. <laughs> and it broke. Oh, this is a sign. This is an omen for the day. Did we lose power? Oh, boy. <laughs> uh, well, welcome, guys. This is your first time. My name is Josh. Welcome to Resonate. We're going to keep it brief this morning because I, I mean, we're well aware of the temperature in here. <laughs> uh, so uh, we're going to talk about money this morning. Fun. So if you're your first time, this is like your typical experience, walking to church and the preacher's talking about money. Um, it's going to be very, 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 very different for a very special reason this morning, and I've never been more excited uh, to preach a sermon. So uh, let me just pray for us. Um, actually, before I pray, I'll tell a story. Uh, I was a devious, devious child, especially in my younger, younger years. Um, I'm the oldest sibling of uh, two other siblings, so I have a brother uh, who's five years younger than me and a sister who's two years young, uh, younger than me, excuse me. And uh, when I was about five, my sister was probably around three or two, somewhere in there. She was just old enough to grow pigtails for the first time. So she had like just sort of that wispy blonde hair, and she had just gotten old enough to grow these uh, pigtails. And that becomes important on the latter half of this story. Just hold that in your head. Uh, the other side of this is my dubiousness. So I was obsessed with sharp things, like sharp objects. I wanted a pocket knife really, really bad. My parents had the clairvoyance to say absolutely not. Uh, so I never got a pocket knife. However, my mom did leave out a pair of those like kid-safe scissors one day, and I stole them. Because I knew, and she's like, where did those scissors go? And I was like, I have no idea what you're talking about. I've never seen these scissors before. And she looked for them for hours because she knew. Like, and she's like, Josh, did you take the scissors? And I was like, no, no, I didn't take the scissors. I had stashed them under my mattress like in a prison. Like, it was crazy. <laughs> so she couldn't find them anywhere. She was looking for these scissors. And uh, I keep them under the bed for, like, weeks. And I would just kind of, like, take them out and, like, glean upon them. It's really <laughs> evil stuff. I've gotten much better. Uh, and my sister is hanging out in, in the playroom one day. And uh, I am doing my daily sort of time with the scissors. And I notice my sister's hair. And I look down at my scissors. And then I look back up at these pigtails and back down at these scissors. And I think to myself, just a little off the top. Like, who's going to know? So I walk up behind her as she's playing and snip. Now, this is where the story goes two ways. I still hold firmly and believe that I did only take a little bit off the top. But the way that my mom tells the story, my sister tells the story, my family tells the story, is that I cut off her entire pigtail, which may be true. So my mom comes up with a pigtail in her hand and a, like, a little girl like basically wounded, like, what just happened? Um, and the scissors were taken away from me. And needless to say, I was punished uh, pretty, pretty severely. <laughs> uh, all that to say is, there's always different angles to different stories. Uh, there are beautiful angles to stories. There are beautiful narratives inside narratives. No one story is just complete and black and white and one story. And we know that, especially as we look to the Bible. There's some really weird stuff in there, and there's some really great stuff in there. And it's a matter of choosing to see beauty in things and choosing to tell the more beautiful story. I believe the more beautiful story is that I took a little bit off the top. I'm going to hold to that. <laughs> but this morning, as we dive into the stories that we're going to be talking about, and especially in the world that we are living in right now, uh, the destruction and devastation that Harvey brought upon Houston, um, the, the crazier flood that's happening in Southeast Asia right now, uh, which has claimed like over 1,400 people. I mean, that's just crazy town, right? It's in these moments that we really have to mine for this beauty. We have to work hard to see the beautiful 
in these crazy things. So I'm going to tell a couple stories from the scripture this morning, um, and then we're going to talk about money, and it's all going to weave its way into one thing. Before we do that, let me take some space uh, just to pray for what's going on in Houston, to pray what's going on in Southeast Asia, and to pray for the fires that are happening in our own city right now. Um, it's just insane. One's underwater and one's on fire. Like, we, it's just crazy. So uh, let me pray. Lord, it's, it's honestly mornings like this that uh, it's tough to sing songs uh, about your goodness. It's tough uh, to believe in goodness when we see so much hurt and so much pain. Lord, we pray that your goodness sweeps over the entire city of Houston, that there be redemption, that there be amazing, beautiful stories. They're already coming forth. But Lord, I pray that you would increase those, you would keep people safe, they would see that beauty, and that beauty would call us into action. Beauty is always an invitation to be generous. You've taught us that. So I pray this morning uh, for those areas that need help. Would you bring help? And for us, Lord, would you, would you turn us into a reactive church, a church that actually acts upon the words that it says? And this morning, Lord, uh, may we step into that boldly. Amen. Uh, so I want to tell a really old story in the scripture this morning, and this comes out of the book of Genesis, which if you open a Bible, first book in there, uh, and it's a huge sweeping story that goes all the way from creation and then ends sort of telling the story of how these Hebrew people, these Israelites, one, became Israel, and then two, how they found themselves enslaved in Exodus. So what most biblical scholars look at is the fact that Exodus, the next book in the Bible, is actually the first book. So Genesis is sort of like this big prologue that we're looking at that's giving us all the information that we need to know to find out why this group found themselves enslaved and why God was not cool with that. And the, the really cool thing about Genesis is it's huge. It's this big book. It's 50 chapters long, but there's one story in it that takes up over a fifth of this book. Over 13 chapters of it are, is the story of Joseph. A lot of you guys might know the story of Joseph from like the Broadway show, Joseph and the whatever, many colors, all that good stuff. Um, but it's actually a huge, huge story. There's very little else in the Bible that takes up that much real estate in terms of a chunk. And so when we look at that and we go, this is so long, why is it so long? We should probably start paying attention. We should probably dig into this story deeply because there's a reason that it exists. So this morning I'm going to tell the story uh, and we'll kind of look at some contextual clues that'll point us to why this points to a life lived generously and why this points to God in action. So Joseph uh, is the son of Israel, whose name was Jacob. And we've talked about this guy in, at length before. Jacob has this fantastic story. Uh, names are really, 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 really important in scripture because they basically name the attributes of the character. And so Jacob... His name is Jacob, which literally means liar, because he tricks his brother out of his brother's inheritance and then moves forward through life. So Jacob is marked as a liar. And then Jacob, and this is where the story gets weird, finds God in the wilderness and wrestles with him until dawn. And God literally afterwards says, you now have a new name. You're no longer marked by the lies of your past. I'm going to give you a new name, which is Israel, which literally means to wrestle with God. So Israel literally means to wrestle with God. So as we talk about this big group of people, you have to remember this big group of people is defined by the fact that they don't just approach God passively. They actively interact with this God and they wrestle with his words. 
So they really dive in and dig deep. It's not black and white language. It's, wait, what does that really, really mean for us? It also kind of shows their fluctuating character of like, oh, we're really super good, and then back to like, oh, we're enslaved. I mean, it's like this big pendulum swing in their lives. It's, they wrestle with God. So Israel has a son. He actually has a bunch of sons. And really late in life, he has his last son, and it becomes his favorite son. His name is Joseph. And Joseph is his favorite son because he had him late in life, and he didn't think he was going to have him. So Joseph is this blessing, this huge like, thing that says God is still at work, and God is still in our lives, even in my later years. Now, if you are an older sibling in this room, you can kind of relate to the fact that having a younger sibling that is the favorite is a little uh, bonkers. That's why you cut their pigtail off. Um, that's kind of what happened here, but on a way, way worse level. So Joseph uh, kind of gets this sort of cocky attitude about him. Uh, and that's actually clear from the scripture. It says he was a 17-year-old young man. And in the scripture, 17 does not mean young man. 12 means young man, right? That's the, the, the marker for biblical manhood. It's like that 12-year-old gap. So 17-year-old young man speaks to his character, not necessarily his age. So he's just this kind of brash, younger sibling. And his parents just adore. So uh, he then has a dream, and this is just like pouring gasoline on the fire. Uh, he has a dream that like, these shafts of wheat are, are stemming up. And that all the shafts of wheat are his brothers. He sees that. And then he sees that he's a shaft of wheat. And the shaft of wheat grows higher and higher and higher than all the other brothers and the parents. And then they all end up bowing to him. Now, if you had a dream like this, that's something you kind of keep to yourself. <laughs> right? I had a dream last night that all of you were bowing to me. It's kind of an arrogant thing to say. And yet he steps right into that and tells his entire family this. And they just get furious and fuming. So one day, uh, his brothers are off tending to his uh, father's flocks. And he sends Joseph off to say, go check on your brothers, let me know what they're up to, and then come back and report to me. So while he's still a long way off, the brothers see him coming, and they plot against him. They all turn to each other, and they're like, I, I've had it up to here with Joseph. We need to kill him, right? Very dramatic, but this is old times, and they could get away with that stuff. So they look at him, and he's running towards them. And they think, okay, let's kill him. And then someone comes to their senses, and it's a guy named Judah. And that's very important. It's a brother named Judah who says, let's not kill him. We're enterprising folks here. Let's throw him in this well and then wait for a caravan to come by, and then we'll sell him into slavery. We'll make money. He'll still be alive, but we'll never have to deal with him again. And they all go, that sounds great. So Joseph arrives. They pull his cloak off of him, and they throw him in this cistern, which is basically a big, hollowed-out well. And I want to really paint the picture here. When we say these stories in Scripture, we don't often live inside of them. So I'm inviting you to step into this. If you are thrown into a well, that is not a comfortable move, a dry well, right, an empty cistern. It would have been about eight feet deep, and if they had chucked him in, he would have sustained huge damage, massive injury. So he's laying there, injured at the bottom of a well, when he's sold into slavery, literally broken and sold into slavery. Joseph later gets sold on to this guy named Potiphar, and Potiphar is a really big official uh, in Egypt. I mean, like, second to the pharaoh. He's, like, right up there with the pharaoh. And uh, he's doing really well for Potiphar. Joseph just sort of embraces this role. He believes God has a plan for his life, and so he rolls with it, and he rolls with it in a big way. He becomes so trusted because he ends up interpreting all these dreams for Potiphar and other people. He has a gift. And this time, those dreams meant a lot. And so if you had someone reliable who could actually like, get to the core of what that meant, you basically had someone on your side that was speaking God's language, that was speaking with God, right? So 
Things are going really well with Potiphar until Potiphar's wife shows up on the scene, tries to seduce Joseph. Joseph says no. She later claims that Joseph slept with her against her will to Potiphar, and Potiphar loses it, naturally, and he's thrown in jail. So Joseph has already been beaten, he's been sold into slavery, and he's now in jail. As he's in jail, he begins to, uh, to just do the same thing, where he's interpreting dreams. Especially for, there's a pastry chef in there, which I love the fact that the scriptures just say it's the, it's the Pharaoh's pastry chef who's in prison with him. It's also the Pharaoh's pastry chef who saves Joseph. Pharaoh's pastry chef, I don't know what he was interpreting. He was like, your bread is going to rise. It's going to be beautiful. Um, but he, he interprets the dreams for the pastry chef. The pastry chef gets out of prison, and he goes back to working for Pharaoh. And then Pharaoh starts having these nightmares, just these terrors. And he calls in all the smartest people that he knows, all of the magicians, all of the wizards, all the whatevers that they had in their world. Because Pharaoh, and I've explained this before, in that ancient context would have been considered a god, like literally a god. He was one of the gods. He was the god that was on the planet. So if he couldn't interpret this and his best people couldn't interpret this, this is not good PR for Pharaoh, right? So the pastry chef... (laughs) gets wise enough, and I mean, this is like off with your head kind of stuff if he's wrong, so he's bold enough to go to Pharaoh and say, I know a guy, I met him in prison, really strong sell here, I know a guy, I met him in prison, and I know that he can interpret this dream for you, and so Pharaoh goes, go find me this guy, so they bring out Joseph, and Pharaoh describes this strange dream he's been having, and Joseph basically says to him, here's what's going to happen, this is from God, and this, is, this means that there's going to be seven years of intense abundance. Like, you're going to have so much food and so much crop, you're not going to know what to do with it. There's going to be abundantly blessed. And then, after that, there's going to be seven years of the worst famine you've ever seen in your life. And Pharaoh goes, okay, I believe that's true. What do we do about it? And Joseph finds himself in the unique position of being a slave and then a prisoner and then the right-hand man of Pharaoh as he answers and says, you need to store up enough grain and you need to start taxing the people more heavily for their own good, so that when these seven years hit, we'll have enough, not just for our nation, but for all the nations around. We can become this beacon of hope, this leading force in this land, if you listen to me. So Pharaoh says, yes, let's do it, and they save all this up. Now, let's fast forward through those seven years of abundance. We're now in the seven years of drought, and Joseph finds himself elevated to the status of, like, he's basically acting as Pharaoh. Pharaoh is Pharaoh in title, but Joseph is calling all the shots. And a really unique thing happens. His family shows up. So his family is struck with this drought so hard, they have no food to feed their families. This is basically, they're coming to sell all of their livestock and their land. And in the Jewish tradition, the connection between you and your land was like family. So essentially, they were coming to sell their family, their livestock, and everything they had just so that they could eat, just so they could survive. And Joseph sees them coming. And here's the moment that I want us to pay attention to. Because this this points to the generosity factor. This points to how we should be living our lives. In the narrative of Joseph, if you read it from chapter 37 all the way to chapter 50, there's never a bitter moment in Joseph's life. There are bitter circumstances that are ugly and terrible and terrifying, but Joseph never sinks to that level. He always keeps this creepily, like, level head. Unbelievable level head. So he sees his parents coming, he sees his brothers coming, and the rest of the story is this redemptive, beautiful act where he basically says to them, I am your brother. And Israel finds out that he has a son who never died, and the brothers get to say, I'm so deeply, deeply sorry 
for what we did to you, and Joseph is able to forgive them. And more than that, he's able to care for them, provide food for them. He's able to provide food for the other nations. This is the crazy overlapping work of God that ends up working out for everyone, not just God's chosen people, but everyone. God's work is for good, and that good belongs to literally everybody in the world, no matter who you are, where you come from, or what you have done. That's the blessing of God. Whether we know we're being blessed or not, there's something taking care of us. And there's another way to tell that story, which is if you don't follow this God, fire a brimstone, you're going to end up in a room like this for the rest of your life. <laughs> but the more beautiful way to tell that story, the compelling way to tell that story, is there is a God who loves you, and his love works in every aspect of our lives for good. Now, I want to speak to a really strange part. This is actually one of the best written stories and one of my favorite stories in all of Scripture. And it's its own little novella right in the middle of Genesis. So these 13 chapters just seem to be this tight little package that explains so much. And for an ancient Hebrew context, it would have had way more weight than it does for us because as they looked at this passage, this passage told them why they were enslaved. On a week like this week, where we have to be asked, like, God, why would you let this happen? I find myself in this devastating moment. Why would you let this happen? That's a very fair question. So in scripture, as the Hebrews would say as they were enslaved, God, why would you let this happen? They would read this story and they would understand this is what led us to this place. And there is this God weaving all the way in and all the way out. And as time went on, as they looked back at that story, they realized the redemptive power that's working out. But for us, we're really, really, really far removed. And so we have to do some contextual work to kind of get back into that framework to find out what the heck was going on in their heads. This is the craziest, most awesome little find that I've found in scripture in a very long time. And here's what it is. That little novella, those 13 chapters, there's almost nothing out of place in the whole thing except for this one chapter. One chapter. At the height of the story, if there are any writers in this room or anyone who took a 12th grade English class, you know that at the apex of the story, at the climax, at this drama moment, that is the worst moment to go and like divvy off on a rabbit path, right? And that's exactly what this does. Chapter 37 is all about Joseph being like literally sold into slavery, and we end right there. Like, he's sold into slavery. What's going to happen next? This is a cliffhanger moment. And then we get to these two randos called Judah and Tamar. So it just switches. Like, switches gears completely. It doesn't make any sense. And the story of Judah and Tamar is one of the weirdest stories in the Bible. I don't have time to get into it right now, but it involves God killing two people and uh, Tamar dressing up as a prostitute to get pregnant by her father-in-law. It's a weird one. It's very strange. Why is that in this story? Why is that there? The coolest thing about the Bible is when you find something really odd that looks like it should not be there, Google it. <laughs> Or maybe just have lunch with a pastor, because like, there's way weirder stuff on the internet. <laughs> and you trust that every day. Um, why is that in there? Why is there this strange story? Well, at the end of this strange story of Tamar and Judah, Judah is the brother in the Joseph story that says, hey, let's not kill him, let's sell him into slavery. And so when we pick up at the beginning of this story, we see God throwing Judah out basically saying, like, you're going to move, and you're going to move in with this far-off land, and you're going to marry a Canaanite woman, which is a totally different culture, and you're going to be way off on this other side. And Tamar basically gets with Judah, and they have twins. And again, you're like, why? Let's read the last passage here, 
this, this is, I'll just, this is like a sample of all the weirdness that's in there. Here we go. Um, we're going to start off at Genesis 38, 27 through 30. It's the tail end of their story. And it's about Tamar giving birth. It says, when she gave birth, she discovered that she had twins in her womb. At birth, one boy put out his hand, and the midwife took it and tied a red thread on it, saying, this one came out first. As soon as he pulled his hand back, his brother came out, and she said, uh, you burst out on your own, so you're named Perez. Afterward, his brother, with the red thread on his hand, came out, and he was named Zerah. It's a very strange story of two creepy babies reaching their hands out of a womb. It, why is it in there? Right? It's in there for a very, very specific reason. So remember, the Hebrews are looking at this story and seeing why they're enslaved now, like why they're being oppressed. And if you look at these babies' names, especially Perez, something really interesting happens. So Perez isn't a major character in the Bible, but his name does appear over four times. And this is where things get so radically awesome, and we see that there's always more than one story. Perez shows up again in the genealogy of a guy named King David. So basically, King David is like one of the key leaders of Israel. He's one of the biggest kings, and has always been foretold that from King David's line, the Messiah would be born. In our context, that's Jesus. Perez's name literally means light breaking forth. One, because he broke out of there, but two, light. Light breaking forth. To the Hebrew people in this context, in the middle of their struggle, as they look at this baby, they see light breaking forth because in the middle of the worst part of the Joseph story, God takes Judah and starts a new story that's going to redeem this story. He starts the story of Jesus. In other words, before the Pharaoh that was going to enslave them was born, God already had a plan for ultimate redemption, for ultimate freedom. There's always a better story. It's whether we choose to stay in the muck or we choose to see the beauty of what's going on in the world around us. I don't know about you guys, I kept watching these clips all week long. All week long, just about the destruction, the craziness that's good, that was happening in Houston, just looking at like the streets that used to be streets that just look like rivers now. Just insane, right? It was insurmountable. But I kept responding to the clips of the people helping more than I did of the destruction and the devastation that was going on there, of the homes that were lost there. It just brings something out of you because when you see someone lined up, chained like this, with humans all the way across to rescue a family in a truck, you sort of get the chills. Or there's this video clip, you may have seen it, where there's a guy who rolls up in a boat on what used to be a street, and when the guy at the camera asks him what he's doing out here because it's so dangerous, he replies, I'm here to save some lives. I mean, that's like the coolest, like, he'll never live that line down. Like, that, that, you've peaked, buddy. <laughs> I wish I was bold enough to use language like that. Um, I'm going to save some lives. It's those kind of moments that just make you want to like, explode out of your chest and go like, whoa, that's beautiful. I think we need to redefine beauty, redefine what beautiful means, because beauty isn't just vanity. Beauty isn't just a sunset. Beauty is in the middle of the worst of the worst of the worst when light breaks through. The New Testament is written uh, in Greek, 
And when they use the word beauty in any context, and when Jesus uses the word beauty, the same word there that's used for beauty is used to call, or a call. So literally, when we see something beautiful like that, that is a call into it, into action. And the question that we have to ask ourselves in spaces like this where we claim to follow this radical savior but don't often look like him, will we answer that call? Because there's beauty in all of this. There's always a different story and people are telling those stories. It's up to us to respond to that call. Will we respond to that call? And I think... Evangelical Christianity kind of uh, put its money where its mouth was this week. It wasn't us. It was a guy named, well, a guy that, I won't name names, but his name rhymes with whole hosting. Um, but time after time this week, I kept seeing Christianity in the headlines. Time after time. Just, there we are again. There we are again. There we are again. There we are again. And I got to tell you guys, it was never good. It was always this, like, deep thing in me that just went, like, oh, I'm so frustrated with what people think Jesus looks like and what we're really, really called to do. We are not called to simply sit on the sidelines. We're called to be that guy in the boat who boldly proclaims we're here to save some lives. That's our job as the church. I'm going to divert to money for a second, and then I'll come back to this extremely dramatic awesomeness. Um, there are three things in life that we are taught to never talk about, especially in, like, at a dinner table, uh, and that's money, sex, and religion, right? And it's fascinating because that's like what we don't talk about is often what we're most obsessed with, right? And the fascinating thing about this Jesus guy that we follow is those are the three things that he actually talked about the most, besides sex, but the rest of the Bible is obsessed with that, so it's covered, <laughs> right? Uh, but Jesus talked about money more than he talked about any other thing. And I think that's really, 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 really important. Why would he talk about it so much? Why does it matter so much? And this is not about giving your money away. What, what I'm trying to actually get to the bottom of is, is if we are living truly generous lives, the type of life that Jesus was living, the type of life that Joseph exemplified, then it's not about giving our stuff away. It's about giving our lives away. It's not about the money. It's not about the cars we drive. It's not about the clothes that we can donate. It's about our lives and what we choose to do with them and how we choose to live. But Jesus knows that money can be a major, major stumbling block on the way to that sort of life. He knows that like money, for some reason, holds us. If you think about it, we love money a lot. <laughs> Sometimes more than we love God. We trust money, certainly more than we trust God. And we believe money will protect us way more and we believe God will protect us. Jesus tells this parable, this story. He was this masterful storyteller. He's talking about money, and he, this is the parable of the rich fool. So he's not, like, mincing words here. But he literally says there's this guy, and this guy essentially wins the lottery. He, he has this yield in his crop that is just absurd, and it shouldn't have been there in the first place, but he just experienced this boom. And all of a sudden, he has all of this grain, which calculates into basically cash money flow, right? So he's just got all of this money now. And he doesn't know what to do with it, so he says, you know what I'm going to do? These barns that I have built specifically for what I can hold, I'm going to knock those down, I'll build bigger barns, and then I'll store it up. And then the most fascinating line, the most relaxing line in the Bible, he just says, and then I can finally sit back, 
drink wine, and say, ah, that's not a literal translation, but that's essentially what it's saying. And God responds to him and says, you, you fool, don't you know that you were supposed to die tonight? Like, you're sick. You're going to die tonight. You can't take any of this with you. What have you done? And this isn't just a story about, like, this guy just being lazy. The fact of the matter is, you would build those barns with high hopes, right? You would build a storehouse thinking, I'm going to build something to a size that if we get it, I can shove, pack this thing full, and we'll be fine. In fact, if those storehouses were full, he would have been a very, very, very rich man, just the first ones. But instead of realizing that he was okay and that God had taken care of him and living generously and giving some of that away, he created some McMansions and decided to shove all the grain into there. And the point of Jesus' story is not that this man was wrong for having this money. That's not the whole point. The whole point is that Jesus blessed him with that money. And he said, hey, I'm calling you into something different. And I know your gut reaction is we got to save, save, save. But what I'm saying is I want all of your attention and I want you to give, 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 give. Because there's always a better story. This morning, I want us to act in that way. And this is what I've been kind of gearing up towards and, and moving towards this whole time, talking about Joseph, talking about um, the different narratives and the different stories. Christianity is telling one story right now, but that cannot be the only story. We have to create different stories. We have to create beautiful stories, and we create beautiful stories when we answer that call to beauty. So I talked with our board about this, uh, and I want you guys to know, we're, we're about a, like, I mean, we've been a church for two, almost three years. We've been a church with me for about a year. We've been financially sustainable for almost none of that. <laughs> uh, we've hit our first sustainable month in April, and I just am truly, this is a blessing to be able to do something like this, because last year we couldn't have even dreamed of doing something like this. But what we're going to do this morning is any giving that we take in this morning over here, online, uh, through your regular scheduled offering, anything like that, we're going to give 100% of it away to Houston, to the Houston Food Bank, to a couple other charities. They're going to really good places. We'll send you an email to show you where that's all happening. And the board worked really hard to find the most reputable places that we're going to do this. But we're going to give away 100%. And that's full knowledge that someone in here could write a $10,000 check right now, and I'll be like, <laughs> right? 100%. Because we're called to create new stories. This is the story of God, that we would be bold enough to step into something radical that looks like Jesus. And I'm so thankful for spaces like this where we can be creative like this and do that, because in other spaces it's really difficult. And so I'm calling us to be generous to those who need it, and I'm saying that the church is also going to reflect that generous life. I think the biggest stumbling block in church right now, and for pastors like myself, is money. We're slaves to it. Because <laughs> if we say the wrong thing, or we do the wrong thing, or we act in a way that may be a little more loving than people are used to, then we're going to get burned. We might lose the money. But if we can actually answer the call that Jesus calls us into, which is to live generously, which is to be in the boat, then we don't have to worry about that. And I never want to be a church that does. So 
I pray that you will step into that generosity and into that beauty and that we could do something really, really awesome. Um, let me pray for us uh, and then I'll explain what's going to go down with communion and uh, we're going to worship together. So let me pray. Lord God, I am just uh, so grateful that you give us spaces like this. Uh, Lord, I'm sorry for how hot it is. <laughs> but God, I, uh, I'm, I'm blown away by your love um, and by who you are. And Lord, we're called to be the body of Christ. And that means we need to move and we need to act. We have to do that together. Because if a body stops moving, a body is dead. So Lord, I call us into a greater understanding of you and into generosity and into hope and into love. And may the small amount that we're able to give or the large amount that we're able to give, whatever it is, may we all understand we did it wholeheartedly together. And that's beautiful. And that's a call. Amen.